that one of my best clients ever called me out of the blue. I get a phone call and this guy was like, I have 17 condos that I want to sell. And uh, I did a little research on you and I think that you're the guy. I was like, all right. He was like, here are the addresses. Thank God I wasn't wearing shorts. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, here are the addresses. Uh, look them up. Give me uh, what you think. And we'll talk about putting a plan together. So I immediately uh, went and looked up the addresses. They're right in my backyard, like literally right around the corner from where I lived. And all of them were like 30-year-old condos that have been rented out for the last 30 years. And so I knew immediately that this guy would be able to make way more money on his uh, return on investment if he were to fix them up. But he was in California. I was on the island. And so I figured I was going to have to figure it out for him, find the contractors to do it. And so I went through and interviewed like 10 different contractors for these projects. It was going to be about $50,000 a pop for these 17 units. Wow. So quite a bit of work. We finally found somebody that uh, ended up doing seven of them for us. So we ended up selling them off uh, one by one. Some of them we sold, remodeled. Some of them weren't remodeled. Um, but but yeah, we had to find some pretty good contractors to take care of that work. So, Welcome to Winning Strategies Playbook, the podcast where we welcome business leaders, CEOs, and industry experts to discuss the rise to the top, building wealth, and real estate insights. Here's your host, Jeremy Spann. So welcome to Winning Strategies Playbook, podcast and YouTube channel that if you want to find out more information on the guests, download this episode, go to myexperiencedrealtor.com and click on podcast. You'll be able to find out everything about the great Ryan Lamb and, uh, and everything else. Ryan, welcome, fellow Marine. Thank you. We Happy belated birthday, by the way. 245 years. Yep. Right? We look pretty good, pretty young for 245 years. Yeah, you're doing pretty good. Yeah. Well, I mean, they, they, they actually, someone sent me a uh, photo the other day of uh, a pirate ship, and they said, was this the Mew you were on? <laughs> and I was like, ha that was very funny. So my, um, my father-in-law says that I have to start every one of these recordings with a joke. I found one related to real estate that I thought you might appreciate. Let's hear it. Did you hear about the last remaining unit in the building, in the apartment building? I have not. It was last, but not least. <laughs> Good dad joke. I like it. <laughs> he fully expected me to have some very different jokes. And yeah. I am inherently trying to just dis disappoint him with corny jokes. So if he actually does listen to this, he's going to be like, what, what was I even thinking? I'm going to say, well, this is, this was a product of what you wanted. And it's so, good. yeah. So Marine for the audience, what, uh, what years were you in the Marine Corps? I was in the Marine Corps from 2007 to 2011, 2007, but I feel like I'm still in the Marine Corps for the audience. Uh, my wife's still active duty. So I've been following her around the last decade. And, uh, so I get, the best of both worlds. I just don't have to put the uniform on every day. So, <laughs> well, you're kind of like me is once, once a Marine, always a Marine. So why re-enlist, right? Yeah, there you go. Which is funny because now she's on recruiting duty. <laughs> now we get to, uh, suck her other guys into the Marine Corps. So that's right. You know, they can get there on day one and be like, this wasn't in the brochure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, your wife, my way, amazing, amazing person. I mean, I, I was telling her when I, uh, I was talking to her on the phone the other day, and I said, 
I'm just going to let you know that if the Marine Corps decides to have its first female commandant of the Marine Corps, it should absolutely be her. I'm not sure how I feel about another 20 years. But, <laughs> but no, I, I think she could definitely do it. And uh, if the Marine Corps wanted a, a female commandant, which I'm sure they will at some point, she would definitely be qualified. So Yeah. she's And, and, and she was prior enlisted, yep. too, in the Navy. Yep. Then went to the Naval Academy. And then y'all met at TBS. Is that what it was? Yeah. Basic school. So for the for those of the audience, why don't you tell people what, what TBS is? And Yeah, the basic school is uh, where all Marine officers go for their first six months uh, as being a Marine. And we learn how to be a basic infantry rifle platoon commander, uh, regardless of what your MOS is going to be. So uh, it's the one place that no Marine officer wants to be at. But in hindsight, it was like the coolest school in the world because... For myself, somebody who is a communications officer, we deal with radios and computers, kind of geek out a little bit in the Marine Corps. Uh, but we spent six months getting to like call in fire from Harriers and drop 500 pound bombs in the middle of Quantico, Virginia, shoot, you know, Mark 19s, um, 50 cal. So we got to do a little bit of everything, do night shoots with uh, tracer rounds flying past you. For me, that was like my once, uh, once in a lifetime opportunity. So it was cool. Well, and the amazing thing about the Marine Corps is it really doesn't matter what your MOS is, right? And, and I try to, I, I've really spent the last 10 years um, focusing on, you know, when people are like, hey, so what did you do in the Marine Corps? And I'm like, hey, listen, what about just the Marine Corps in general? And the reason being is a prime example was last year, I got to do something really, really cool, which was go up with the Blue Angels, right? And the following weekend, I was the guest of honor and speaker at a Marine Corps birthday ball for the local F-18 group. So I got to relate being able to go up in an F-18 and be able to be their guest speaker. And it was really funny because as I was going through and describing it, I said, this is why all jobs matter in a military is you would think that once we were up in the air, that that pilot was the most important figure in my life at that moment. And I remember being up there and going, actually, no. <laughs> actually, it was the guy that buckled me in <laughs> to make sure I don't fall out of this damn thing. And then I thought, no. Actually, it was the guy that made sure the ejection seat in here works because if he can't stop flying the plane, then or if he stops flying the plane and we got to get out of here, then this thing doesn't work or I'm not buckled in great enough. You know, what does that look like? And then it was... Oh, actually, it was the maintenance guy to make sure, or maintenance person to make sure that this thing was firing off on all cylinders. And then it was like, wait a minute, down to the fuel person, right? Probably the most unsexy job on there, being the person that fuels the plane. But what happened if they got the mix wrong or whatever? I don't know enough about it, what, what it is. And then I thought, no, not even them. And I looked around the crowd and I said, Who's the admin in here that makes sure everybody gets paid? This one ring raised his hand. I said, <laughs> you're the most important person every single day because if people aren't getting paid and their SGLIs are all messed up, then nobody's focusing on what they're supposed to be doing and then anything could fall apart. So every job in the military, no matter how sexy or non-sexy it is, is, is absolutely relevant and absolutely part of a bigger machine yeah. that is there to operate as one, especially the Marine Corps, right? Because compared to the other branches, we're, we kind of do everything 
Uh, I did get a funny meme uh, on the Marine Corps birthday that I sent uh, on to my friend, uh, General John Allen, retired four-star Marine. And uh, he he actually thought this was a, a little comical. So it's uh, I'm going to show you this. And then for the audience, I, I'll, maybe I'll try to post it later. But it says Navy, and it's got these two girls pointing and screaming, saying, you're Department of the Navy. And it's the Marines that says, why is the Uber driver yelling at me? I saw that. <laughs> That's the most popular meme on, on uh, social media, I think. So <laughs> Natalie loves every single one of those. So there's oh. like a million of those memes. And especially since she was in the Navy before, right? Yeah. <laughs> so you get out of the Marine Corps. Yep. And in 2011, okay, are, are you and Natalie already married at that point? Uh, we were engaged when we were getting out, when I was getting out of the Marine Corps. So we got married a couple months after I got out of the Marine Corps. Okay. And where was, and then where were y'all at after y'all were married next? Uh, we were in San Diego at the time. Okay. So we were both stationed at Camp Pendleton together. I got out of the Marine Corps out of Camp Pendleton. She went down to Miramar for a couple of years after that. So we spent our first couple of years married. Well, we spent our first two years while we were married, one year I was in San Diego with her, and then another year she went back to Quantico, and I stayed in San Diego. So, uh, our second year of marriage, I was in uh, on the West Coast; she was on the East Coast. So, that wasn't necessarily her highlight. Yeah, when, when I proposed that idea to her, <laughs> I got to get into real estate that year, though. So that was the year I went full time. Real estate was the year that she was back in Quantico, and I was in San Diego. So, mm-hmm. um, I figured a year in the DC area doing real estate probably wasn't good. And then knowing that we were going to move right after that. So what drew you to real estate? Uh, that's a loaded question. I could, <laughs> I could go back real far, but uh, so the short story is I always was fascinated with homes. Uh, when I was a kid, I would like draw floor plans and stuff in my notebooks in school. And so I don't know, m- my dad was a carpenter. So we did a lot of home improvement projects and stuff when I was a kid. And I think I have fond memories of that. And I just just kind of grew on me. Um, and so I knew I wanted to be an architect. So Frank Lloyd Wright was my idol when I was growing up. And uh, I when, when I was going to college, uh, the only thing that was important to me was going to an architectural school. So I got into a school that had a great architectural program. And uh, my first year in college, uh, my social life blossomed and architecture kind of faded away. (laughs) And I realized that wasn't quite my passion anymore. Partying kind of became my passion. And so I was like, you know what? And also that same year in college, I uh, decided to join the Marine Corps and go to OCS that summer uh, and serve my country when I graduated college. So no matter what I majored in, I was planning on going to the Marine Corps for at least four years. And so at that point, my goal for college was to do whatever was the easiest degree I could get into. So architecture went to the wayside and a business degree uh, blossomed from that. And uh, so I ended up getting a business marketing degree out of college. And, uh, and so I went to the Marine Corps. I always had that passion to be in real estate though, in architecture. So when I was getting out of the Marine Corps after four years, uh, I just started asking myself at the question, like, all right, what am I going to do now? Like, I, I want to get into real estate. I have a business degree. What's that look like? So I just started networking with people and uh, found a Marine officer, Naval Academy grad that started his own real estate brokerage. And uh, he was the one that helped Natalie and I buy, buy our first house in San Diego. Uh, so that experience was kind of my um, stepping point to get into real estate was buying our first home, utilizing our VA loan. And uh, and then through that experience, he was like, hey, go get your real estate license uh, and just, you know, I'll have you under my wing. And that was how my career got started in real estate and been doing it ever since. So 
after your first year in college, majoring in having a good time. Yeah. And the Marine Corps, that calling, did that happen then or prior? It happened then. I never thought about, so I didn't come from a military family. My grandfather, he served in World War II, but that was one of those things that I think everybody in that generation served in the war in some capacity. So it doesn't hit the same way as like Vietnam era, I think on. And uh, so didn't have a military family, never even crossed my mind joining the military, uh, going off to college. It was uh, somebody in my fraternity. He was actually enlisted Marine, got out, went to school, used his uh, GI Bill. And uh, he just happened to be in my fraternity. And I was talking to him one night and uh, probably a few beers in. And uh, there was something within our conversation that he just looked at me and said, man, I think you would make a great Marine. And that was it. Somehow I uh, ended up contacting the OSO that was conveniently located in my college town. I don't think I would have probably joined if it wasn't so easy. Uh, So I contacted the officer selection office uh, for the Marine Corps, I think that week, met them the next week uh, on campus and uh, signed paperwork. And this is how much I didn't know about the Marine Corps at the time. I, I remember I had signed a contract to go to OCS. I called my dad. I'm only a few months into college. So I'm like, hey, dad, I wanted to let you know I decided to uh, join the Marine Corps. And he was like, what are you talking about? And very conservative family, like totally fine with the military. Like yeah. that wasn't the problem, but I had just went off to college, never crossed my mind, never brought it up before. So he was a little caught off guard and we're right in the middle of, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan war. So I think any parent was going to be a little concerned when they first heard that come out of their uh, son's mouth. But um, I, I, <laughs> I mistakenly said, hey, dad, I'm, I'm going to join the Marine Corps. He was, like, <laughs> he was like, well, first off, it's the Marine Corps. And he's like, what are you talking about? And I was like, I thought it was the Marine Corps, but it's spelled corpse. He's like, well, that's just how they spell it. So a <laughs> little bit of an embarrassment there. Uh, but, but yeah, so totally kind of caught off guard myself joining the military. Um, and I would say over the three years from my sophomore till my senior year before I commissioned, uh, there was a lot of times where I questioned whether I was actually going to go forward and actually commission. I never took any money, never took any scholarship. So I wanted to be like, I didn't want any commitment leading up to uh, the moment I got to raise my hand and decided that, hey, yeah, absolutely. This is something that I want to do, serve my country. And uh, if I don't do it now, I'm never be able to do it. And um, so God would have something in store for me that I would have never have guessed. Ended up meeting my wife in the Marine Corps, which at the time when I first met her, I used to look at women in the Marine Corps and I'm like, what? Why would they ever join the Marine Corps? Why would a woman want to join this? Like, <laughs> why would they want fighting to? <laughs> for it? Like, it's, I guess maybe the Air Force, but why would they ever want to join the Marine Corps? Especially the stuff they have us crawl through in Quantico. So, um, but yeah, so my life's been changed ever since. Got to meet my wife, uh, the most amazing woman I've ever met. So it's been a good experience so far. So during that three years, that sophomore through senior year, was was there ever any doubt? Or I mean, was this like, all right, I'm, I want to keep my options open, so I'm not necessarily that committed. But was there any ever times where you were like, man, maybe I really shouldn't go do this? Uh, it, the only times I felt like I shouldn't do it was just when I thought about being losing my personal freedoms, right? Going to OCS, which is basically like boot camp, and being institutionalized. And I was in a fraternity, like I told you, my life was partying, having fun, I was running wild and free in college. And so thinking about, you know, going into that type of lifestyle and then going to the Marine Corps where they tell you what to do and everything's forced upon you. 
that was where my, most of the hesitancy was. Um, but I knew that serving my country was greater than my personal freedom. And so at the end of the day, I made the decision that I, that was a, a higher calling than just losing some of my personal freedom. So. So then you get to TBS. Was it at everything you expected and more or what completely not expected or? Um, that there's a lot of stories, right? We all have a ton of experiences. I won't go into some of my uh, TBS experiences because we don't have enough time on the show, but uh, TBS was certainly a challenge. I think just the Marine Corps was a challenge for me. I just couldn't buy into like the institutional lifestyle, like having to do things and, and use words like, ink stick as when you when, when you're an officer you don't say those type of things so it yeah. was a good thing i became an officer because i would never have i would have been a worst enlisted marine ever um but there were certain things i just couldn't wrap my head around like being comfortable with and uh but the basic school was incredible in the fact that you know it's thought of as being one of the most premier leadership schools in our country and, uh, and so the experience that you get out of that, I mean, it challenges every aspect of your life, physically, mentally, emotionally. And, uh, so I, I don't think I really knew what I was getting myself into. And so putting myself back in those shoes of like being a second Lieutenant showing up at Quantico was a little nerve wracking, I'm sure. Um, but looking back on it, I mean, it was an incredible experience, met some close friends every, you know, November 10th that comes around. I'm, I'm texting happy birthday, Marine, to guys that I haven't talked to in 10 years, and we get to uh, exchange some texts. And uh, so it's been uh, a great experience. That, you know, that, that is the thing about the Marine Corps is it's more about our history, and that's what determines our future. And I think that's one of the things that makes Marines Marines, right? And every year when November 10th is coming around, I mean, we, we celebrate it. Better than we celebrate our own personal birthdays, right? It, it just because there's, there's this common shared, what I call the common shared suck, right? Definitely. Anytime you see another Marine, you go, we have something in common because we went through what sucks in order to earn the title Marine. Yeah. And, and so it doesn't, you can smell another Marine a mile away, right? You just go... It was something you said or the way you said it or the way you carry yourself or whatever. And you're just like, Marine Corps? Yeah. All right. And then there's this instant connection uh, uh, to that, right? And Certainly. so going through a, a leadership school like the basic school, what are some of the components that you learned out of there that you still utilize today? I would say number one is you can't do anything by yourself and it's all about teamwork. Um, I mean, that's just every aspect of life. It's, uh, I, I'm not smart enough to think that I can do anything real well by myself. So uh, I don't know, call that humility, call that just not being that smart. And so I'm always looking to other people uh, to get the job done, especially as a Marine officer. I mean, Marine officer in the communication field, I mean, any field in the Marine Corps is very complex. And so if you show up thinking that you know everything and you can get the job done, uh, I think you're gonna be put in your place real quick. And um, so I think what allowed me to succeed in the Marine Corps and to succeed at the basic school is that I knew I couldn't do it on my own. I had no clue what I was doing. And so I always was looking to my right and left to uh, get help and, uh, and to have people you know, supporting me along the way. And when I got out, after the basic school, got out into the fleet, 
And uh, I was thrown into the fire at a regimental uh, S6 uh, communications unit, 150 Marines. I've never served a day in the Marine Corps in my life as far as being a, you know, an actual lieutenant and uh, being in the fleet. And I was like, how am I supposed to lead 150 Marines? I've never led more than like <laughs> two people in my life. And so, uh, so that was teamwork is 100% it and looking to every you know, technical specialist to do their role. And, uh, and just giving people the opportunity uh, to perform the best they can. And so I think that was where I uh, was able to find the most uh, growth was just allowing people who are really good at doing something to be great at doing that and give them that opportunity. So, so you join real estate. And where did you start your real estate career at? So it was that Naval Academy grad, Marine officer, who was my first mentor, incredible mentor. I mean, obviously, Marine officer, Naval Academy grad. So uh, he had a ton going for him and he just took me under his wing. Um, he was running a team in San Diego. Uh, we were focused on military veterans and, and active duty. And so San Diego is a great place to do that. Huge military community. Um, I had no idea how I knew I wanted to be in real estate before I ever joined the Marine Corps. I had no idea how much the Marine Corps was going to impact my future career in real estate. Uh, for one, I mean, just for starters. Military members move around every three years. So that means they need a, a new house every three years. Whether they're buying or not, they need a new house every three years. They have access to a VA loan, right? 100% financing. They have job security. They have a good income. There's all these things that go along with the military lifestyle that I only learned after I got out and how beneficial that was to uh, being in uh, a real estate career. And then also being a Marine, and being able to connect with those people, right? There's a lot of real estate agents. You know, real estate's one of those jobs that's not too difficult to get into. And um, and so, having been in their shoes before, and my wife and I, we were doing all the things that I was helping, and that I, I still do help military members do. Buy homes everywhere they move. My wife and I have bought six homes in the last 10 years, and uh, we purchase homes everywhere we move. And so, I was doing it. So, I, I told you, I bought a house. That was my stepping you know, point getting into real estate, met my mentor and, and then got into real estate. So I learned it firsthand. And then I started just educating other military members on how to utilize that effectively. And uh, so that was really my experience getting into real estate. And, uh, and then I just took everything. So I spent two years in San Diego, um, figuring it out, just learning the career. And then Natalie got stationed out in Hawaii and so I was moving out there, had to figure it out for myself, started my own team out there. Wasn't necessarily planning to start a team, just kind of organically happened because the guy who brought me onto his team, uh, I knew what he did and I just kind of followed in his footsteps. And, uh, and it was just kind of, again, going back to that teamwork thing. I know that I can't do things real well by myself. And so I just try to surround myself with a bunch of people that uh, we can do a better job together than uh, individually. And so that was, that's been my experience in the first few years in real estate. And so, um, yeah. What was the difference between doing real estate in San Diego and do, where, where are we all out? K-Bay? Uh, in Hawaii, yeah, yeah we're at yeah. K-Bay. So, now, so you're, you're all on base, off base, I'm assuming off base because you said you bought a house there, right? Where, yeah. where were you living at? In Kaneohe, which is just okay. outside so of So you were in Kaneohe Bay, yep. right? And was there a, a difference between from San Diego to, to there? Yeah, it was night and day difference. Tell me about that. Tell me about the differences. Uh, well, San Diego is, I mean, California in general is very professional. And 
I, we could get into a conversation about that. But, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm sure if there was some San Diego real estate agents listening to me, they'd probably disagree. But in comparison to my experience, two years in San Diego, um, the professionalism compared to Hawaii was night and day. And not so much that you know the people were more professional in San Diego, but there was just a different level of like business acumen that went into real estate in San Diego in comparison to Hawaii. And so that's probably not saying that much because as you would probably agree with me is that um, there's not a whole lot of business acumen in real estate in general with most agents. Um, and so to, when I got to Hawaii, I realized I could stand apart from most people because I was a Marine officer. I was coming from one of the hottest markets in the country in San Diego. And so those two years of experience in San Diego, I think really set me up for going to a market like Hawaii. Uh, and San Diego is a military community. Hawaii is very much so a military community. Um, um, tremendous military presence there. And so it was a little intimidating going out there first because you know, you're going to you know, Pacific Island, you have no clue what to expect. Uh, a lot of people you know, talk about you know, locals and they're like, oh yeah, they don't really like you know, uh, mainland people. And I totally found that not to be the case. I, I go open arms to new locations and say, hey, I'm in somebody else's neighborhood. I'm not in my neighborhood. This isn't my home. And so uh, I, I loved Hawaii. Natalie and I really enjoyed it there. Uh, built a good community. Um, but yeah, as far as the real estate business side of it, this is how I dressed in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. So I stood out because everyone else was wearing Aloha shirts. And, uh, and everybody told me like, oh no, you'll be wearing shorts and Aloha shirt before you know it. And I just, I was like, you know what? I'm going to create an image for myself and a brand for myself that's going to differentiate myself and, uh, and serve the military community, right? The guys and gals in the military come from the mainland. That's what they're used to. And so that laid back island lifestyle that so many agents were accustomed to didn't really, I think, bode well for the military community. They wanted a professional, a high performer. And so that's what I was to a lot of the military uh, community out there in the real estate side of it. Uh, and so I was able to excel out there a lot faster than I think I would have ever expected. Um, and so it was, it was a great place to do real estate, especially as a, a military background and having a military niche and focus. I uh, kind of wish I could go back there sometimes because it was, it just seemed easier out there. Um, but all in all, the business was kind of similar to uh, Texas as far as just the contracts and the way it was set up with escrow. Texas has been a little bit more of a learning experience for me than, than <laughs> we'll California, Hawaii. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But so, yeah, it was, that was my experience from the, uh, the onset. So when you're doing real estate in Hawaii, what percentage of your clients were military related? Initially, probably 75 to 80%. Okay. Um, my wife and her connections and her command ended up being some of the, the best referral clients I had. Uh, so she was at first radio battalion out on K Bay. And uh, I, it took me about six months to get my feet underneath me. So when we moved out there, I figured, you know, it's going to take me a while to get my feet underneath me. And so we're going to buy a fixer upper. So we bought a fixer upper out in Hawaii. And so I spent the first six months really focused on building my brand. Uh, and it was the first time I was doing real estate on my own without having the support of a team. So it was kind of a learning experience. And I figured I'd use that six months and I was kind of patient. I think that probably helped as well. And so spent six months fixing up our house from top to bottom, three-story townhome and 
met a lot of contractors. And so that was another thing I, I enjoyed was helping military buy a fixer upper, put some sweat equity into it. A lot of military folks, they want to do that. And that was something that interested them. So I wanted to have that experience because San Diego, the house that we bought was a 2007. And this was back in 2011 when we bought it. So it was only four years old. So it was a new construction. We didn't have to do anything to it. And so I didn't really have that uh, experience fixing something up. And I wanted to have that so I could pass that on to my clients, build up a uh, contractor base, build up, you know, where do you buy things on the island? Cause you don't have the same logistics uh, on Oahu as you do in California. You can't, there are Home Depots, there are Lowe's, but they don't have the same inventory that they have in uh, California. There's no, there's very few like granite stores and there's like one granite and cabinet store that everybody goes to. So in California, you know, you go around every corner and you find home improvement places. So I got that experience and that helped me a lot, out a lot too, because a lot of my clients that were in the military, Hawaii does not have a lot of new construction. Hawaii's construction style is unique. A lot of single wall construction. If you're not familiar with that, it's like literally a piece of plywood is your interior and exterior wall. Uh, so you got one inch between the elements where hmm. in Texas, we got like 18 inches of brick insulation. So uh, it's a little different out there and the quality of home is just, it, they need to be remodeled. So, uh, it was a great experience to get and, uh, and it allowed me to serve, I think my client base, uh, a lot better. So was the cost of materials significantly higher out there as maybe compared to the California as well, or? I don't think so. Uh, you have less selection, so you might have like 10 different tile to get and you don't like any of them, but you just got to pick one. Yeah. Uh, there's certainly a higher cost in Hawaii and it just depends, but you can go to Home Depot and pretty much buy a toilet for the same amount that you'd be able to buy it in California. So appliances though, they would take, well, in COVID appliances have been taking two to three months to get. <laughs> so that was Hawaii. You go to buy a refrigerator and they're like, all right, we'll let you know when it shows up. So we were always waiting on appliances for months. Um, so they didn't have huge warehouses outside of like literally the Home Depot. They don't have, you know, fulfillment center in Decatur where they can just go pick things up. Yeah. Yeah. And now, now what about the trades? Were the trades more expensive because of the limitations? The trades were definitely more expensive yeah. and, and contractors, contractors get a bad rap no matter yeah. what part of the country you're in. Yeah. In Hawaii, it's a whole different level. Like <laughs> you have no idea if they're going to show up. You have no idea what type of quality you're going to get from contractors. I would go through a different contractor every six months. Like I would recommend them to two clients and then by the second client, I was like, I just don't feel comfortable recommending this guy anymore. And, and they were super busy too. So um, because the island's just small, there's not a lot of people in the construction industry. Um, it's people were really backed up and busy. So if the surf was good, they're definitely not showing up. So that, <laughs> that was a downside. And so you, you really had to search around to find some good contractors. That was a challenge. And uh, I had... Uh, we can get into it a little bit. One of my best clients ever called me out of the blue. I get a phone call and this guy was like, I have 17 condos that I want to sell. And uh, I did a little research on you and I think that you're the guy. And I was like, all right. He was like, here are the addresses. Thank God I wasn't wearing shorts. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, here are the addresses. Uh, look them up. Give me uh, what you think. And we'll talk about putting a plan together. So I immediately... Uh, went and looked up the addresses. They're right in my backyard, like literally right around the corner from where I lived. And all of them were like 30-year-old condos that have been rented out for the last 30 years. 
And so I knew immediately that this guy would be able to make way more money on his uh, return on investment if he were to fix them up. But he was in California. I was on the island. And so I figured I was going to have to figure it out for him, find the contractors to do it. And so I went through and interviewed like 10 different contractors for these projects. It was going to be about $50,000 a pop for these 17 units. So quite a bit of work. We finally found somebody that uh, ended up doing seven of them for us. So we ended up selling them off uh, one by one. Some of them we sold remodeled. Some of them weren't remodeled. Um, But but yeah, we had to find some pretty good contractors to take care of that work. So yeah, I, I recently got to experience when you're in a market where it's not the materials that are the shortage, it's the labor. Yeah. And with our, you and Natalie coming through and seeing our house in Pagosa Springs and um, we interviewed, I don't know how many contractors. Matter of fact, we had a plumbing issue pop up, right? And it wasn't a major issue. We just had something that popped up. And I think Laura called something like eight plumbers. And the reason we used the one that we did was because he was the only one that returned a phone call. Yep. Right? Like, only one that returned. And it turned out he's an Army vet. We go along, and now he does all of our plumbing stuff up there. But we told him, we were just like, man, you're the only one that returned the call. And prior to buying our house, we were really considering building on 11 acres that we found. But then we found out, they were like, yeah. And this was in um, August of 19. And we said, okay, if we buy this thing when, and we start the design and build phase, when could we be in it? And they said, ah, if you're lucky, by Christmas 2021. And I was like, over two years to build a house? And they were like, oh, yeah. And it's like almost 300 bucks a square foot because you're dealing with weather conditions. You're dealing with, because we are a little bit further season. out there in the mountains, the materials and I just wasn't sure I really wanted to wait two and a half years to get into a house. So then we get our house there and, uh, which the house is fine, but we wanted to do some projects. I would say the house is more than fine. (laughs) You got a nice place up there. (laughs) I appreciate it, man. The view definitely sells it, right? I mean, looking at Pagosa Peak, actually y'all went and climbed Pagosa Peak, didn't y'all? Yeah. Well, I don't know if we climbed to the peak, but yeah, we climbed over by it. Yeah. (laughs) Well, we knew that, so the house is a three-bedroom, two-and-a-half bath with a study, and we wanted to convert the study into a bedroom because it's right there next to the half bath and turn it into the full bath. And then there's a 800-square-foot unfinished space above the three-car garage that we wanted to turn into a finished-out space. We wanted to build an outdoor kitchen. We wanted to do a hot tub with an extended roof line over the outside and we wanted it to, really not a lot in the masher bath, but it was a huge shower was huge. So we wanted to add glass in there because Laura gets really cold. She gets cold when it's 100 degrees outside. So naturally in Colorado, taking a shower when the hot water stopped running, she was getting cold. The pain we went through just on the shower part was ridiculous. Matter of fact, here's how funny it is. So we were interviewing contractors. We got to one that we liked. And when he was going to do it, he said, you know what? I don't want to do the project. I don't want to do remodels anymore. I just want to build. Let me refer this other guy. The other guy shows up. Nice enough guy. And it took us eight weeks to get some glass put in the shower. And he really didn't even do anything. He was like, well, I'm going to send a glass guy. I'm going to send a paint guy. I'm going to send a tile guy. 
And it took eight weeks to do all that. And it was funny. I was asking Lori the other day. I was like, you know, we never even heard from them through the process. Like the glass guy would call us and then the tile guy and so forth. And I finally asked, I said, has he sent us a bill? And she goes, no. She goes, we actually paid the trades directly, according to him. And he still hadn't sent us a bill. And I was like, huh. And But it was funny because halfway through the eight-week process to get glass put up. I'm not talking about tearing the shower down to redo it, right? Like, all they did was put glass in a glass door. And um, he had reached out to Laura about halfway through the project. He was like, hey, when are we going to discuss the other project? She goes, why don't we finish this one first? And during that time, I said, there is going to be no discussion. If it takes eight weeks to do something that should have taken about eight hours, there's no reason we should do this. So we... Ended up, funny enough, uh, Michelle, who, you know, works for us, her yeah. husband's a contractor. They were up using our place for a week. They were out in town. He, they're having lunch or dinner somewhere. And somebody says, oh, what are y'all doing up here? We're staying at a friend's place. What do you do? I'm a contractor back in Texas. They said, oh, you should talk to Blake Bruckner. And so we interviewed Blake and he has been amazing. His communication is responsive. He lets you know uh, about the delays before there is a delay. So instead of just waiting and pinging and calling and emailing, going, hey, where, where are we at on this? And on a few smaller projects that are involved, he's like exceeded expectations. And that is really hard to do with me to literally meet expectations, let alone ex- exceed expectations to where now where that study in half bath is that's all been torn out and it's reframed and they're hopefully should be done here in a couple of weeks moving fast enough. But, but it was kind of funny because with the pandemic, it's not any of the big items that you come missing. It's that one little connection piece to make everything work. Right. Yeah. And so that's what took the grill so long the outdoor kitchen. They were like, I was like, why is it this done? And he said, we're missing, I don't know, call it the flex capacitor or whatever it is. And I was like, is it that hard? And yeah, like we've, it's on back order. We've called everywhere around the US. So he's definitely stands out by communicating and delivering, right? So, mm-hmm. but, but you realize how spoiled you are when you come from somewhere like Fort Worth, Texas, where you got a large number of contractors you can choose from and you can vet them and go look at their projects and everything else and things get done in a timely manner. Then you go somewhere where it's like, that, matter of fact, this kind of what I learned from my plumber, Charlie, uh, the army vet. He goes, oh yeah, Pagosa Springs is really meaning Pagosa Low. Because nothing, as a matter of fact, when we're up there, I don't even wear a watch, right? Because nobody's going by any sort of time. And uh, Sounds like so, Hawaii. Right. So that's what I was going to say is I, I got a taste of that there, mm-hmm. which gave me a great appreciation for back here in the Metroplex, right? So so you finish up in Hawaii, you go back to San Diego, right? Is that is that where y'all ended up after Hawaii? Yeah. So we okay. spent the last three years in San Diego. Okay. So you go back there and so you you, you leave your team established in, in uh, Hawaii, right? Yep. Yeah. So they're still doing things. You still got that, been able to manage that from afar. Yeah. And so a little bit about Hawaii. So I think my first year, so I told you I took took about six months before I think I did my first deal. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and really I was focused on my house. So it worked out. I was kind of patient, just building my brand. And um after 12 months, I had done 10 deals. 
So my first year in Hawaii, it was just me, 100% me, didn't have anybody on my team yet. And my first agent that came to work with me was actually my neighbor who was a school teacher, but she was deathly afraid of bugs. And in Hawaii, there's bugs and geckos everywhere. I don't consider a gecko a bug, but <laughs> she did. She hated them. We would hear her screaming and stuff like that in the middle of the night. It was funny. But so she couldn't take it. Like she was that afraid of bugs that she stopped teaching. And so she, she would confide in Natalie and I, like, I'm just, I need something to do. And uh, she was like, I've always thought about getting my real estate license. So I helped her get a real estate license. And this was while I was still just trying to figure it out in Hawaii myself. And so I ended up doing 10 deals pretty much at the end of my first year. She comes to me and she's like, hey, I got my real estate license. And, uh, and so I ended up bringing her onto my team. And so that first year, I think I did maybe like six to seven million. Uh, the second year, it was me and now the one agent that was working with me. And together, uh, I think we did 24 deals that second year. And obviously, we have a little bit higher price point in Hawaii. So my average price point was like $650,000. And I, I did close to 15 million, I think, my uh, second year, which was phenomenal. Yeah. And uh, so I was doing pretty well at the time. Um, and again, that was my neighbor. I wasn't out hiring somebody. I wasn't looking to bring on somebody to my team. But over the next, the course of the next year, I had Marines that would come up to me and ask me that were looking to transition out, wanting to get into real estate. I had spouses that wanted to get into real estate. So by the end of my third year, I ended up having six agents that were working with me, all organic, never went out and tried to hire anybody, never interviewed anybody. It was just good people that wanted to get into real estate. And uh, again, going back to that teamwork thing, I just knew that, hey, I can probably help them. And if I do help them get started into the real estate career, I think that uh, I'll be able to get something as a byproduct out of that, whether it's you know additional commission because of their sales, whatever it is. And uh, so that's how I've kind of run my business. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I did that final year. I did around thirty million. We had a wow. little over fifty sales, and uh, and that put me in the top uh, fifty agents in the state of Hawaii. And so looking back on it, I mean, it doesn't seem like a huge achievement. Uh, but at the time, I was like, "Wow, this is incredible!" Like I would have never expected this three years in Hawaii, and and so at the time, we didn't know if Natalie was going to stay in the Marine Corps as a career or not, or get out. Uh, but she wasn't ready to get out, and so we ended up moving to San Diego. And I ended up spending almost six months in Hawaii while she went back to San Diego because I was like, "How am I supposed to, you know, manage my team from afar?" And so it took me about six months. We also had two homes in Hawaii at the time, so we bought a second house. And I was trying to figure out, all right, we got to sell one of our homes, buy a house in San Diego. I got my business here. And so it was, uh, it was like a six-month transition for me to get out uh, and be back with Natalie in San Diego. Uh, but for the most part, it was, all right, I didn't set out to build this business, to build this team. I love real estate. I love helping military members uh, buy real estate, help them starting to invest, build wealth in their career. So that's really where my passion is in this industry. And, and now I have six agents working with me, three of them just sold or made over a hundred thousand dollars commission, never made a hundred thousand dollars in life in their life. And so for me, I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. I got to help three people make six figures and they never had done that up to that point in their life. And they're doing it in a career that they've only been in for the last year or two. Uh, and so that kind of gave me a little bit of motivation to maintain that business. Um, over the years, that business has shrunk in Hawaii, but I have an incredible partner out there. 
who still works with me. And uh, we've been working together for the last five years. And so as I transitioned back to San Diego, same exact thing. Wasn't set it out to uh, build a team, but pretty much my first month back in San Diego, Dan Chapman, mm -hmm. who you know, uh, one of my best friends and my primary lender partner that I worked with. Marine as well. Marine as well, Naval Academy grad. So pretty much everybody I associate myself <laughs> with seems to be a Marine Naval Academy grad that's in real estate. That's like my whole entire network. Um, and I, I showed up for a month and he was like, hey, Ryan, I just met this kid, Danny. He, like, I want to connect him with you. He wants to get in a real estate, super sharp kid, 24 years old. <clears throat> I was a little hesitant because I'm a big believer when you're getting into a real estate career, it should be your second or third career. It should be, you should have experience in life. You should have already bought a house. Uh, just, you should know what you're doing before you're helping somebody, mm -hmm. <laughs> somebody else do it. And uh, this kid changed my entire mindset on that. He was, and not, not to say anything against the other agents that worked with me, but I think because he didn't have all of those possibly bad habits from other careers, he was in the banking business for a little bit. And so he knew a little bit about the finance side of things. Um, but he was a young, just amazing kid. He had the right heart, the right attitude, and, uh, he's been incredible. So he's been on my team for the last three years in Hawaii or in San Diego. Um, and so again, I wasn't looking to hire anybody, but I brought him on and, uh, he's been a phenomenal addition to the team. And he's currently, uh, the one who took over the team, uh, in San Diego when I left. So I get, uh, a couple of great partners in two amazing places around the country that I get to do business with still and uh, still get to help clients in Hawaii and San Diego. And now I'm getting my feet underneath me here in Texas. So what was it like using the VA loan product in San Diego? Uh, so there's certain challenges that come with it, right? Uh, as you know, uh, a lot of agents look at it that there's going to be complications um, and that was certainly when I first got into real estate in 2013, uh, there was a lot of challenges getting VA offers accepted. Um, that has shifted, I think in San Diego right now in San Diego, VA offers are phenomenal. Uh, I don't think they have the same challenges that they used to. Most agents in San Diego are very well versed and educated. The appraisal process has changed. I think a little bit over time. Uh, I think that VA appraisals used to be more challenging before I got into the business. Um, I've had more conventional problems, conventional loan problems than I had VA loan problems personally. So that's my own experience. And, and so I just had to learn how to sell the VA product um, to the other agent. So if I'm working with a buyer and, and trying to get their VA offer accepted, I had to over a couple of years learn how to sell that to the other agent letting them know my experience, letting them know that is my niche. And like, this is all I do. And here's my track record. I've sold this many homes. I've never had one VA offer fall out. I've never had an issue that wasn't, you know, that was something major that caused the uh, transaction to get canceled. So that was my experience, but there's certainly uh, a mindset out there with a lot of agents that VA can be a more challenging product or that it's going to cost the seller more. I just got finished doing all of my Texas broker license uh, classwork. And they literally teach that. Like there was a part of the VA loan, like this, it's going to be more expensive for the seller. And I was like, I need to call this person who put this education together because that's not true. Right? Like there are definitely VA non-allowables that a VA buyer cannot pay for certain closing costs, but a lot of those closing costs 
one, it's, you know, there's a certain percentage that it has to go above before they can't pay certain things. The only thing they absolutely can't pay for is a termite report, but you can get termite reports for free or at the, you know, most a hundred bucks agents are willing to pay those, you know, there's a million different ways to get that negotiated. And that's not much of a cost. So uh, they teach it almost like there's hidden costs associated to a seller with a VA loan, which is absolutely not true. And uh, I I love educating agents on that because it is a great loan product. Um, and in San Diego, it's probably looked at more highly than conventional because a lot of people know that VA buyers have 100% job security, especially this year, right? Mm-hmm. This year where lenders are calling day of closing, calling the job verification, job verification multiple times throughout the transaction. Yep. And I actually had a, a client, one of my, um, he was Danny's client, one of my agents in San Diego, uh, who had to cancel last minute, lost his job the week before he was closing. They called to verify employment and he wasn't able to buy the house. Um, and that was a conventional loan. So VA didn't have that issue because military wasn't getting fired during coronavirus. <laughs> so uh, I think it depends on which market you're in. What about Hawaii? What was it like using VA? In Hawaii? Hawaii was very challenging when I first showed up, but I don't want to pat myself on the back because there was a lot of incredible uh, people in Hawaii doing a lot of good work with the VA loan. Um, but I was certainly an advocate for it. And I was a pretty loud voice when I first moved there because I had just got done uh, in San Diego, where I had closed my first two years in real estate, I was part of probably like 25 transactions, I think, over those uh, two years. And I think maybe all but two were VA transactions. And all of them were as smooth as possible. Like I'd never had any major hiccups in any of those transactions. And so my experience was, man, I've done 20, you know, three VA transactions in the last two years and haven't had any issues why are people so afraid of this thing? Why do they think there's so many complications and they're going to have so many appraisal issues? Um, you know, is it possible? Absolutely. But an appraisal uh, issue can be on any loan product. Um, there's uniquenesses about the VA loan, but if you are, if you know that going into it and you educate the buyer going into it, I think the process is hundred percent smoother. And so oftentimes it's more of the agent that I find is the problem, not the VA loan. The agent doesn't know how to prep the buyer, doesn't know how to connect them with a good lender, right? If you don't have a good lender who's versed on VA, they're going to have issues with it potentially. Um, If they don't have, uh, there's a lot of things where if you're just not educated and that's not what you focus on, you might have trouble doing something that's not your expertise. And so I've just surrounded myself with people who are experts in the VA side of the business. And that's what I wanted to become. And uh, so I've never had any challenges, but when I got to Hawaii, it was very difficult. It would probably about a year and a half in though, where it like totally flipped. Um, The VA did change some guidelines uh, on their appraisal side in Hawaii. So they were allowing up to 21 days for uh, the appraiser to get his appraisal back in. And I was like, that's crazy. Like, what are they? 21 days? Like no one wants to accept an offer if they got to wait 21 days for an appraisal. And, And the appraiser also when it was a lot of condos uh, and townhomes in Hawaii, so a lot of HOA. And the appraiser didn't have to start that timeline until they had CCNRs in hand, which sometimes that would take a couple of weeks. So that was a downside in Hawaii at first. Uh, we got them to change that. Uh, we got a little bit of foot in the door with the regional office, uh, with the VA while we were in, out in Hawaii. 
and be like, you need to talk to your licensed appraisers and tell them that's not acceptable. Like it's a disservice to these VA buyers because people do not want to work with VA offers because you're doing these um, certain things. Out there in Hawaii though, the standard closing timeline was like 60 days. Oh, wow. And so my first experience, I was coming from San Diego where we could easily close in 21 days. And so I go out to Hawaii and when I'm buying my first house and interviewing lenders for myself personally, I'm like, so what is your standard closing timeline? Everybody would tell me, oh, 45 to 60 days. VA, probably 60 days minimum. I was like, tell me why. Yeah. And they're like, well, it just takes longer out here in Hawaii. I'm like, tell me why. <laughs> what is so different about the whole process in Hawaii that it takes so long? And no one had a good answer. They would tell you exactly what I just mentioned about the appraisal side of it. But other than that, it was just people being lazy and being okay with that being the tradition and customary and being the norm. And so my transaction, I found a lender that said, I can do it as fast as you want, Ryan. He's like, if you, he's like, you obviously know what you're doing. If you can get me all the documentation and I can get you underwritten approved uh, before you get into the contract, I'll close this as fast as you possibly um, can make it go. Talk we, about a differentiator. So we close in 17 days. And as you can guess, that was my lender forever, right? Right. And, uh, and so he's actually here in Texas now. He's out in San Antonio. Uh, Chris Kana, I'll give him a shout out. Okay. And, uh, and so he was my first lender out in Hawaii, did a phenomenal job. And he was with Veterans United at the time. He and his partner were uh, branch managers of Veterans United out in Hawaii. And, and those guys were doing an amazing job at educating Hawaii, uh, both on the military side, educating them on the power of the VA loan, and then also educating agents um, on the power of the VA loan and how to work with it. Uh, so they were kind of able to marry up that side of the business the military VA side of the business in Hawaii. And I think I just happened to show up right when they were really starting to get a lot of education out there. Uh, and they were doing weekly seminars with, um, with military members, whether it was VA, active duty, veterans, uh, you name it. They were trying to educate them on the process. And they were also doing the MRP uh, certification education for the state of Hawaii. So uh, they were also educating a lot of agents. So thankfully, it changed while I was out there because as a military member myself, my wife and I both have access to the VA loan and knowing how powerful it is and knowing how good it is. Like, the, I don't know why it had the bad reputation it did for certain people. Um, it was good to see that kind of get changed and reversed. Uh, it was, I was a little sad when I moved to Hawaii and, or I'm sorry, when I moved to Texas <laughs> <laughs> and Texas seems to be a little bit further behind. With that being said, the current uh, market that we're in just how competitive it is across the country. I mean, historically low interest rates, historically low inventory across the country. That makes VA challenging for certain reasons because a lot of VA buyers are coming in with no money down. And it's not so much the VA, it's the no money down. That's what scares people away, right? So people want cash. People want as much cash as possible, even though it really doesn't change anything. If you can have a lender that closes in 20 days, whether it's VA or 50% down conventional, who cares? Uh, at the end of the day, they're still getting the money. But Well, I think that goes back to the acumen, the business acumen of the agents that we're dealing with, right? So we do a lot of military, a lot of Marine families move in here for the base, recruiting, so forth. And man, we, we hate being... You know, I like to manage expectations for people that are coming, which means sometimes saying some unpopular things. 
And those unpopular things being that, hey, just so you know, here's what's going on in the market space. There is no inventory. You're going to overpay for a house, but the good news is you're going to overpay even more two years from now. Yep. Because there is no inventory, right? This is market-driven. VA is going to be seen as not the strongest in the view of the sellers Mm -hmm. for you as a buyer that unless the person who's selling is also a military member that chances are you're even your letter that you write and always recommend write a letter, write a personal letter to the seller, mainly because you're hoping to make that emotional connection for them to see, Hey, look, I'm, I'm using a loan product. It's actually a great loan product, but the agent's, haven't been educated enough um, or maybe had a bad experience, which when you think of a large portion of agents only doing a handful of deals in an entire year, if they did five deals and one was bad and it was a VA, that's their experience. 20% of their experience was bad, right? 20% of their sales experience was bad and 100% of it was only a VA loan. Yep. And so those are, or hearing the misinformation, like you studying for this broke exam, like, what 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 is all this information out there to say it? So I we what we've done recently is Laura has been reaching out to this to the military family saying, what could we have done better? Because we always wanted to, what could we have done better? And all of them just said, man, we were just it was really just kind of heartbreaking to hear that, hey, if it's possible, use conventional, not VA when you come out here. Cause if it's a house that's competitive. Now, if it's a house that's been on the market for 90 days. Nah, I wouldn't worry about it too much. But if you find if you find something that you really like, guess what? So do 20 other people, right? And you got to experience that on one of them that we put the offer in on, right? Yeah. Where even on that particular, I'll never forget, uh, on, on that particular house, I was like, look, I get it, man. This house listed at 415, I think is overpriced. By 15 grand. But with that said, you're talking about the one in Hearst? Yeah. Yeah. Still going to go with multiple offers and so forth. And I'll let you choose whether or not you want to say what we offered on the house that we still didn't even win it. Um, Didn't we go to 500? Yeah. We went to 500. Yeah. So basically, listed at 415, really should have traded for 400, put in an offer, $100,000 more, which is a trade for it. We didn't even win it. And it was like, and, and we weren't even doing VA offer on that. That was with conventional whole nine yards, waving appraisal. So, the, so trying to explain that to folks that are coming from markets that aren't as aggressive is going, look, if you really, really, really like the house, there is a line of people that really, really like the house too. And if you're using VA, depending on the level of experience of the agent, we may consider doing conventional because if you want this house, right? To that point, though, I mean, especially over the last six months, yeah, doesn't matter what loan product you have. If 20 offers are coming in, which has been the norm in San Diego, you know, 20 plus offers on the majority of the homes that we've been putting offers in on over the last six months since the coronavirus uh, thing all broke out and 19 people have to lose, right? And right. So, you know, the percentage of your buyer getting it, if they're not all cash, again, I still don't understand why 
cash is king all the time, unless they're either. removing all their contingencies and everything else. And uh, certain agents just, I don't the know, check they, they you feel get more comfortable at the closing table. Who, who cares how that check is written? Right? I, I've seen cash <laughs> deals fall out because they have all the options, right? They're in the upper hand typically. Mm-hmm. And so they'll put in an offer. Two weeks later, they're like, you know what? Actually, I don't like the house anymore. I'll cancel. Yeah. And they're like, where'd that Which, come from? It was all cash. I thought it was a sealed deal. And, uh, but regardless, it's just been super competitive recently. And so whether you're VA, conventional, I mean, you know, yeah. I can't tell you how many experiences over the last few months that I've had with people coming in with 20, 30% down, removing inspection contingencies, appraisal contingencies, uh, putting in escalation clauses. And it's, and still like no phone call back, like, hey, did we get the oh, house or not? They're like, oh, sorry, that, no, we picked somebody else. And it's, so it's just difficult in these that type is, of markets. You just hit on something that is one of the most frustrating things we deal with is people often ask me, you know, hey, what's it take to be successful in real estate? And I'm like, look, there's a number of things, but if you just do one very thing, you'll be success, more successful than 90% of the agents. And they're like, what's that? And I'm like, communicate. Return a phone call. Yeah. And they're like, no, seriously. I'm like, Answer your phone, return a phone call, yep. text, just return the call. And, and they're like, what? And I'm like, yeah, we, we have deals where we're under contract and we can't get a call back. And on the commercial side, it's even more. I've got one client right now that's frustrated. It's like, why have we not gotten an answer? I'm like, I cannot get this person to return the call. On that, you also have to know the market, right? Mm-hmm. So specifically that house we were just talking about in Hearst that we put that offer in on. Yeah. That agent. And- to be fair, right? The market was definitely <laughs> changing. And that house was kind of a unicorn in yeah. its area where it was. It was right on the border of Colleyville and Hearst. And so I saw a lot of value in the house, obviously. And so did many other people, but she was not expecting it. I called her two hours after she put it on the market yeah. and she's like, oh, I've already gotten 10 calls. I'm like, well, you're about to get a lot more. I can tell yeah. you that. And, uh, and she didn't understand the wave of people that were going to be coming. And yeah. uh, so- you can't, if you don't know the market and you don't price a house properly and it's a house that everybody wants, you're going to get a thousand phone calls. You can't possibly return a thousand phone calls right. uh, to some agent's credit. But if they would have known the market, they could have priced the house uh, realistically and, um, and they wouldn't have, they would have weeded out a lot of those buyers that they thought were getting an amazing house at, you know, $415. Uh, so. Oh yeah. And, and, and that's why when he's, folks are moving here and I go, look, I'm not saying this. I hope it doesn't end up like this with the house that you find that you really like. I just want to prepare you. I'd rather you hear it now. And it, if you have to hear it again, it's not the first time you heard it when, when you have to hear it again. Right. Mm-hmm. To go. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I think a VA offer should trump any offer out there because less than 6.8% of the population has ever taken the oath to protect this country against enemies, foreign and domestic. And if you're going to use a product that that should be utilized, right? And yeah. uh, but you know the reality is the reality of, of things. Um, you 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 mentioned um, teamwork and team building, and I, I think there's so much value in it. There's not a lot of teams that are out there. A lot of it is just very individual. Hey, I buy and sell a handful of things. I have an opinion and some people look at me and go, nope, that's probably what's going to happen. And then I have a lot of people look at me and say, no way it's going to happen. But based on technology, based on a number of other factors that I could spend over an hour talking about, 
I think in the next five years, 85% of agents will be out of the business. When you hear that, what is your opinion towards that? I heard people saying that five years ago, so I don't necessarily agree with that opinion. I do believe that it will happen, um, but real estate's one of the largest, if not the largest industry uh, in our country, in the world. And there's a lot of uh, organizations, the association, the realtor associations, the uh, bureaus of real estate that are at you know state level. There's a lot of housing related laws. So the more I've put thought into that question, I think it's going to be difficult to get rid of the real estate industry in the way that it's already created mm-hmm. with real estate agents being involved at the center of every transaction. Um, technology will take over. It already is proving to do so. I think it's going to be a little bit more difficult though than say like the stock market where you got rid of stockbrokers pretty quickly and now anybody can buy you know, a stock on Day their- trade on fo- whatever. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it's free, no commissions nowadays. Uh, I think the real estate industry is going to trend in that, I don't think it's going to move as fast as I originally thought it would have been when I was getting into real estate uh, seven years ago, eight years ago now. So I don't know. I don't agree with the five year and especially <laughs> 85%. I don't know what the numbers are, but I imagine that there's a lot higher percentage of real estate agents today than there was a year ago. And markets like we've been in for the last 10 years, people get into real estate because they see home prices going up. They see you know, the opportunity that real estate offers and the, the flexibility and the freedom of uh, a schedule. And with COVID, right? And things going virtually, I think a lot of people are like, oh, I'm at home. I, I should do something new. And I've heard a lot of stories of people getting into real estate over the last six months. So I bet you next year, there's going to be some type of statistic that you know, real estate agents are up 25% from 2019. So in the greater Fort Worth Realtors Association, there's 32, I think last I checked was 3,200 licensed agents. And the reason I think this is going to head this direction is I had thought about it before, but I really believe that the current conditions of the pandemic is going to accelerate that happening. Here's why I think is the buyers are more sophisticated now than they've ever been. So our grandparents who bought a house lived and died in that house. Whereas now when we're gearing somebody, we're like, hey, let's look at what the exit potential is on this house in three to five years. And they're like, why? And I'm like, you're probably going to call me in two to three years to sell this thing. I mean, one of them, fellow Marine buddy of mine, bought a house a couple blocks away, area that's absolutely just gone through the roof over there in our area. And he called me. He, He literally closed on it two years ago. Uh, here in about another week. He said, hey, what would my house trade for? And I told him, I said, this is probably what it trade for. He goes, that's over $100,000 more than what I bought it for two years ago. I said, yeah. He goes, let's get it on the market, right? Because he was like, why not? Because I'm going to capture that money, mm-hmm. unlock my VA, and you're going to buy me another house here in the same neighborhood because it is still trending up. Yeah. He's like, but why wouldn't I take advantage of grabbing that extra amount of money and he's going to redeploy it to his own business, he owns a business. Uh, and, and I was like, yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally, totally understand that. But the buyers are more sophisticated and they want more information than they did before. And where the old days of, hey, here's the CMA, the last six months of sales of like-kind houses on your house used to be enough. That's no longer enough for the consumer. They're like, no, I, I want to know more. 
Um, that's why like in our spreadsheets, what we do now, we don't even send a CMA. There is a spreadsheet with filters that draws in all the data. And then we use the filters to go, this is like kind, but you can play with the filters to see this is everything going on. Mm-hmm. You know, from the, what, you know, people look at days on market. I'm like, pay attention to the CDOM, right? Cumulative days on market. Cause someone could have fired their agent five times in the last six months and seen that, you know, that house was actually on the lot house a, a lot longer. And yeah. then, the original list price versus sales price, right? And uh, and that's those things become the, the impactful things to look at the true nature of data of what that's what that's showing there. But because the consumer is demanding more sophistication, um, I just got my license a little over four years ago, and I felt like like even what you're going through here with the brain damage you just went through is. So a lot of information there that just seems very antiquated mm-hmm. and very old. So, and here it is, we already have a lack of business acumen among real estate agents as it is. And then their training is antiquated. So the, their ability to produce a service is not aligning with the expectations of the service of the, of the consumer where you're right. You're never going to get rid of all agents, right? This is, this is not going to happen. There are some people that want that. They want, they, they enjoy having someone advise them in this. But when nine out of 10 are failing their advisement, <laughs> sooner or later, people are like, why don't I use you anyways? You're not telling me, telling me anything I can't find out on my, on my own. Yep. And because of this, and, I, I, and, and another reason is, is I believed that the pandemic accelerated this timeline because, and you've heard me, this is not first time I'm saying this for the listeners. You've heard me go on this rant for many, many times is you see, you had to have a real estate agent because they were the only ones that had access and then technology changed that. And then nine 11 happened. Financial markets went into stress. We were like, ah, let's take our shoes off at the airport, go kill some terrorists. And the market bounce back, right? Here's agents real true time to shine. And they didn't. They didn't to the point of the bubble of 2008 hits, right? And big failures on that, right? People got into it because it was easy to make money. Mm -hmm. And anytime something has a low barrier of entry, very easy to make money, the level of service that gets delivered, that's going to hit a... across in the road at some point that the consumer is going to go, why, why am I, why am I even spending money on this? So then after that, right. Um, so that the, the consumer was using agents and trust was failed again. Then started about 2010 for the last 10 years, market shooting back up. It was yet a third time for the agents to be able to go, look, I'm really in this because I want you to trust me and do this. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't, I'm not saying all people are bad and untrustworthy. I'm just saying when you have a low barrier of entry that doesn't require a lot of acumen to make some pretty good money, but you're not delivering on that expectation. So I felt that in the last 10 years, people were using agents more out of a necessity of time Mm -hmm. or their lack of. And that's the reason they were still using agents until quarter two of the United States, or actually everywhere in the world, yep. of 2020. 
And now, what did all of a sudden everybody have that they didn't have before? Time. And Zoom. And Zoom. <laughs> the Zoom. Don't we all wish we had bought stock and Zoom, right? So now, um, and it also, what, what I think demonstrated too, is technology that is in real estate showed that it wasn't as sophisticated as everybody thought it was. Um, iBuyers were no longer buying houses. Um, nobody was listing their house because everybody was locked down. So what did technology really provide? It didn't really provide anything. So there was a gap between what technology should be able to do and what it was actually doing. And then there was a gap of, well, I never had time before, but now I have time. So in my opinion, there is someone, whoever, wherever, that saw the same thing and is writing some sort of code that will fill both of those gaps. So that way when someone goes, well, if I didn't have to spend a lot of time because a widget, an app, a whatever, who knows what it'll end up being, could provide that where I didn't have to deal with someone that's going to not even... Their, their level of training doesn't even match the level of expectations that I have. And now you've got a piece of technology that can fill that gap. I think that's what's going to cause. And, and, it, and it's really frustrating because even when I'm speaking to many, many other agents, I'm like, look, this should never be about just you making money. Now, don't get me wrong. Nobody should work for free. But I've always felt if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing in an industry and delivering that value, the money's going to naturally follow. Mm-hmm. Right. But when I'm having conversations with agents that are crying on the phone going, you don't understand, I have to have this close or I can't make my rent payment. Whose interests are you looking after? Are you looking after your interests or your client's interests? And I think all too many of those examples are starting to surface because now with the use of social media, someone can blast their agent on online, right? And I had wrote down a note here is building a brand in this industry is so, and you've done an incredible job of doing that uh, wherever you have gone. And there's so much importance. So when I tell people, like, just learn to answer your phone or return a phone call and work on your brand, but be true to that brand as you're carrying it forward because it could very well be that when the music starts playing and 85% of people are left without a chair, again, my opinion could be very wrong, could be another 50 years, who knows. But if you if that does in fact happen in five years, that brand that you have built could be the dividing line of why you're in the 15% that's still there, not the 85% that is not, right? Yeah, well, I, I feel the statistic, but they say after like the first five years, you know, it's 85% of real estate agents are out of the industry. Like if you get licensed yeah. this year, 85% of them aren't licensed after five years. It's kind of well, like- Because they only sold five things in yeah, five years. It's kind of like small businesses too, <laughs> yeah. but you always have that wave of new agents coming in. Yeah. So I definitely think technology is going to be what is a disruptor. And I think it needs to. I think that yeah. the real estate industry is very inefficient, um, like wildly inefficient. And- uh, it certainly is a complex industry, but it can be simplified with a process. And that's what good teams do, right? Like mm-hmm. good teams set up a process to make it easy for a buyer or easy for a seller and take the work out of their hands, take the stress out of their hands. Um, and I think that technology can absolutely meet that need. It's just going to take a company putting a lot of pieces together. And, uh, and again, 
real estate's very regulated at the state level, um, local levels, different ways of doing it, and that they're customary. And so, like a Zillow or a you know a big national brand can't just do the same thing in Texas as they're doing in New York or doing in you know Washington. Yeah, that needs to change too. So I think they need to create a more standardized approach to it across the country. So I think that's going to take a while. I think it's going to happen. Uh, I just think it's going to take a little bit longer. Well, you look at like Texas is a non-disclosure state. So when it gives the Zestimate, that's exactly what it is, is the Zestimate. Yeah, there, it could be accurate. Yeah. Could be, well, they told you Wildly your house was a lot worth, for a lot more or a lot less than what it's actually worth. And and it's interesting that you bring up the new people that are coming in. If there is a chance that this industry does not lose 85% of its folks is because the hybrid agent is what comes in that does things different, right? But things would have to change because it is, well, I mean, let's face it. I mean, there's a lot of money spent on lobbying, which mm-hmm. has kept a lot of power inside the, you know, NAR, yep. National Real Estate or National Association of Realtors yep. and Texas Realtors, all of those things. But even those components of lobbying and what a lobbyist can and can't do, those things could look very different sure. over the next 10 years. Then, And they probably should. Right? And all of a sudden now, if you don't have a voice, what happens to that power that you had before, right? So when I don't, when I, so when I'm sitting here talking to many of agents and they go, what is your goal with your clients? And then I go, well, I mean, I've got a number of goals, but I'm going to tell you one that will really blow your mind. And they're like, what? And I was like, my goal is to be able to educate my client to where they know as much as I do, if not more. Mm-hmm. And they're like, why would you do that? They <laughs> won't need you. And I'm like, well, one, chances are they're going to buy a house every two to five years, you know, in the, in the world that we live in now. And I want them when they come back to me that the communication flow is even faster because they understand. They go, well, if they know what you know, they won't need you. I was like, man, you can Google what we know right now. (laughs) And they know already. I said, that's where we're, we're, you know, for us, communication is key. You know, trust is the currency of business. I say that probably on almost every episode that I have here. And that, Clarity creates trust. Confusion creates fear. So if I can help establish that create clarity, especially in first-time homebuyers, yeah. which you and I have had this conversation with, like, man, a first-time homebuyer can be absolutely terrifying. And then some people don't want to deal with a first-time homebuyer because they don't. And I'm like, oh, I, 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 I absolutely love first-time homebuyers because I, I make a first-time homebuyer happy. You know how many houses I'm going to help? this person with over the next who knows how long and they're excited they're passionate yeah. they're like fired up they just bought their first house oh, yeah. i could go on and on about a couple different first-time home buyers that have been incredible referral clients that have given me like the majority of the business that i've done if i traced it back to like the yeah. source and uh and it's because they get fired up and it's when you educate them right mm-hmm. that was my number one thing that i do is when somebody calls me and they want to buy a house, whether they've bought five homes or they've never bought a house before, I always want to meet face-to-face. Nowadays, you got to meet via Zoom. Zoom. But, um, but I always want to meet face-to-face and tell them exactly what you just said. Educate them on everything that I know. Like one, to set expectations. And two, just to make them more educated because if they're more educated, they're going to 
it's going to be a smoother process from start to finish because they're not they're going to know what to expect every step along the way. And if an you know, appraisal comes in low or, or something comes in with the appraisal, I already prepped them in advance for that. Yeah. So everything along the way, I want them to be educated on it. And then at the end of the transaction, they're like, holy cow, I know so much more uh, about what w- went on with that process. And my agent, he educated me and Natalie. But I think at the end of, the, especially if you ask Natalie, at the end of our transaction, we were lost. Now it was a short sale. It took like six months mm, and he yeah. was having a baby during that time. And so there was miscommunication that took place. But I remember being at the end of my transaction, like, I'm not really sure that everything that should have been told to us was probably told to us. And so I took it from my experience of buying my first house. And that was why that was my stepping stone in my career uh, was, okay, I want to use my um, my firsthand experience and knowledge uh, to apply that to educating my clients and put that into my business. And uh, and so I always try to think back on that. It's like, what are the things that I wanted to know? And what made me fired up when I learned something? I was like, oh man, this is something I, I really should have known or this is what I wasn't told that I wish I would have known. And uh, and so one, you just help your clients and have them be in a better situation and uh, everything else. So absolutely. Yeah. And I don't want the listeners to think that like I don't like other agents and I think that they're all bad people and distrustworthy or anything else. It's actually quite the opposite is you and I talking before we came in here is that the first time I went to a global networking event in Las Vegas in 2016, before I was even in industry, I went with Laura because Sotheby's had bought her office and she agreed as part of the selling to them that she would stay on and manage for two years. And I saw agents and as it turns out, you were at the same one. We just didn't know each other then. Yeah. But thousands of agents from all over the place. And I thought, wow, if how how do you create a a, a landscape that is bigger than what you can touch? Mm-hmm. And it had dawned on me. I was like, man, what if I spent the next couple of years interviewing agents from all over the globe? which even included up until the pandemic, the previous 12 months, I'd thrown 100,000 miles in the air, traveling around, interviewing agents. What makes you a good agent? Just because you sell the most doesn't mean make you the best, but what makes you the best? And it was, how do you take care of your clients? How do you serve your clients and whatnot? And then that's why in 2018, we were number one here in Sotheby's for most outgoing referrals, 2019. Um, we'll find out, 2020. <laughs> Who knows, maybe people stopped sending out referrals. I have no idea, but uh, we've done quite a few. Had a big boy closed last week for $2 million up in Durango. There you go. Uh, Colorado. That was, that, was, that was nice. That was a nice little Congrats. pop. Congrats. But, but it was, that's how we expand. That was the reason I created this podcast was so that way the listeners are tuning in to hear great success stories, hear great stories like your story, but then realizing, hey, wait a minute, if I want to buy and sell real estate, I can just go to the website, myexperiencerealtor.com, take about two seconds to fill out name, phone number, email, and where I'm looking, and I can have someone that's already done the, the vetting of the agents for that area to make sure that they get the right agent. Because if you just pick up the phone book, well, they don't no longer pick up the phone book. You don't even know if they make phone books anymore, but if they just Google. pick up the list, right? The Google list. Is, the Google. Did they, did they get, are they getting a good agent, you know, or do they know enough about what they're doing to ask the right questions to the agent? We've already done all that for them. And, and that's why I am sure that there's probably agents that are listening to this episode going, 
why would you bring on someone that's also in the industry on here? And I'm like, well, for a couple of reasons. One, I, I'm not always the fit for someone, but I do know this. I have an incredible amount of respect for what you do that it's like, look, if I'm not the fit, you should talk to my friend Ryan, right? Because we're not always a fit for each other. And secondly, I know that my friend Ryan has a team set up in San Diego and a team set up in Hawaii that listeners on this, if, they, if they're buying and or selling in either one of those markets, they can find you to help them do that, right? And, and guess what? If I'm able to take other great agents and put them in front of the consumer, then what I've done is I've helped protect our industry mm-hmm. instead of dismantle the industry. But you can't always talk about how great something is without talking about how great it isn't either. The shortfalls, yeah. Right, the shortfalls. So that's that was, man, I didn't even, you know, I, I was like, hey, you want to come do this? And you were like, yeah, what are we going to talk about? I was like, man, trust me, the conversation will, you, you will literally look up and an hour has gone by with, without, you know, without blinking. So, so now you're just finished your brokerage exam here, yeah. right? And so it means you're able to do business in three different states. So that's pretty Pretty cool. Well, we can do business anywhere, right? With referrals. That that is hundred percent right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so as you spread this when this drops and you put it out to your network, it's hey, hey, don't forget when y'all are buying or selling anywhere that they need to call you because you've got people in other places, right? Because we've done a good job. I mean, that's a good thing about the Marine Corps, right? Is you know, your Marines come from all over the place. Yep. And wherever and they move a lot. And so we're able to connect them doing that. So, um, I always like to end these with, there's a lot of things that we would want to tell ourselves at 22 if we could go back, which is a lot longer ago for me than you. <laughs> but if you could go back to 22-year-old self and say, self, um, what if you don't listen to anything else, listen to this one thing. What would you tell 22-year-old self? If you could actually turn back the hands of time and have five minutes to to say this is what? Uh, Well, to go in line with the winning strategies playbook, right? So Mm -hmm. I thought about that when you asked me to come on and, you know, what are some winning strategies in life? And so that kind of hits to your point. Like, what would you tell your 22-year-old self so that they were a winner uh, from that point in their life? And for me, the number one thing uh, that... I like to think about is start with the end in mind. Uh, that was something I think Stephen Covey uh, might have wrote about that in one of his books, and I probably read it along the way. But um, the idea of going all the way back to the end end, right? Your eulogy when you're no longer alive on this planet. What do you want to be said about you as a human being? Um, that changed my life. And that would be a whole different podcast for me to come on and talk about <laughs> <laughs> talk about that side of uh, stuff in my life. But um, starting with the end in mind, that idea, and actually, I literally did write my own eulogy years ago when I uh, was going through an exercise with a men's group and trying to figure out what kind of man do we want to be at the end of our lives. And when you're 22 and when you're you know just into partying and chasing girls, you're not thinking about the end, right? You're thinking about that moment and, um, you know, live in the moment. There's certainly a, a time and a place for that. But when you're thinking about what do I want to do with my business? 
what do I want to do with my life? What do I want to do with my marriage? What kind of father do I want to be? What kind of spouse do I want to be? Um, start with the end in ma- mind. Who do you want to be at the end of the day and plan backwards? And so I think all business planning, all life planning should start there uh, because there's a lot of things that I would have avoided uh, when I was younger, if I would have thought that way. Uh, I probably wouldn't have chased certain things that weren't you know, worthy of my time. Uh, I wouldn't have spent time on things that just weren't edifying. Uh, so that would be probably my best advice to uh, my 22-year-old self. Uh, thankfully, I got that advice at some point, right? <laughs> and um, But you know, the earlier you can get that, I think the better. And it causes you to ask, why am I doing the things that I do? And put practical steps into place to meet your goals and, uh, and the real goals. I, I see so many people chasing goals that I think are probably not what they're really after. They're after something totally different, but they're chasing certain goals because it's the American culture or it's just the way they were raised or it's just how they were taught. And uh, if they really thought about who they are, why they're here uh, and who they want to be at the end of their life, I think things would look a lot different. That's, that is some, man, I, I have to say is I ask that question at the end of every episode. And I know at some point, one of these answers is going to be the same as someone else's, but we're on a trend where nobody's given the same answer, and, which is candor from, from the guests. Now, you, you've got a nonprofit that, uh, yeah. that you are on the board for, of. On the board of. Tell, yeah. me, tell me about that. Yeah, so you'll like it because it's uh, military focused. So it's called Soul Survivor Outdoor, uh, retired Marine Lieutenant Colonel who started it. And uh, we are an active duty focused uh, nonprofit. We do an outdoor adventure activities with active duty. So there's over 40,000 veteran focused nonprofits and very few active duty focused nonprofits. And so um, our founder, he looked at that and said, man, I want to reach active duty while they're still active duty and not while they're broken afterwards, right? And, and there's so many people already focused on that. And so we are a Christian-based nonprofit, and uh, we try and spread the gospel through outdoor activities and outdoor adventures. So we do a lot of skydiving, a lot of rock climbing. Uh, we just opened up a chapter down by uh, Fort Hood and Colleen uh, just about six months ago. So perfect timing for me showing up here. And we've been doing a lot of uh, horseback riding down there. And so it's 100% free to active duty service members. Uh, we actually connect with and create relationships with commanders and chaplains. And uh, it, it ties in with the military's focus on um, PTSD, uh, suicide prevention, resiliency, spiritual fitness. And as Christians, we saw a need in the military more so than anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And it's where we come from. So we just have a natural tendency to want to serve uh, our fellow brothers and sisters in the military. And, um, and so we're kind of, we look at ourselves as the, uh, um, the not reactionary, but getting out and ahead of the curve with people who are suffering from PTSD. We want to meet them before they go off to war and have these, you know, physical and emotional wounds. And uh, we want to try and give them a, a message to think about exactly what I was just talking about was, you know, think about who you want to be as a human being and start living that out today, uh, regardless of where you're at. And so obviously, uh, we've focused that around Jesus Christ and his message. Uh, but we do it in a way that is kind of military friendly because 
most commanders are, you know, a little bit dicey on <laughs> how that looks, um, but we're doing it for free and it's voluntary. So, you know, people don't have to show up. Um, but our goal is to try and grow and be nationwide serving every single base uh, in the country. So it's kind of a, a large dream that we have, but we just opened up our second permanent location here in Texas recently. And uh, yeah, I'd love to have to check that out. So that's Soul Survivor Outdoor. And uh, you can Google that and check it out. Ton of Google reviews and stuff. So you'll see us pop up. And, uh, and people can donate to that site as well. Yeah, people could donate or people could reach out to me uh, on my social media, and uh, which we'll put links to. Yeah. And uh, yeah. if anybody's interested in that, I would love to uh, take a phone call with people. We have a lot of supporters, a lot of people who support the military community. And I don't think a lot of people know that there's not a lot of active duty focused um, networks. Now, there, you know, there's obviously things that are set up in the active duty industry to, you know, focus on those active duty folks, but not nonprofit specifically, and mm -hmm. uh, especially with um, uh, a faith-based approach. So, Okay. And on top of that, someone's looking to buy and sell some real estate. How do they get a hold of you? Yeah. So my website is lambshometeam.com. And uh, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. Uh, Ryan Lamb Realtor is my uh, tag on most of those. Uh, so Ryan Lamb's Home Team, or I'm sorry, lambshometeam.com is my uh, website. Okay. And we'll be sure to have that uh, when you all go to myexperiencerealtor.com. If you click on podcasts, you can go down to Ryan Lamb episode and click on him. It'll have all of these links on there as well. Man, you uh, thank you for your time and you. coming here on Winning Strategies Playbook. And I and man, your 22-year-old self-message, I think that is absolutely right on point. And that is that is that is one of the best ones I've heard yet. So thank you again for coming and thank uh, you for having me. Man, I'm looking forward to the audience response on this one. Awesome, brother. Well, maybe yeah. there's another one we can get more into uh, that response. Oh, we can definitely do more of these, my friend. Awesome, brother. <laughs> All right. Let's see. Thank you. All right.